Hi, this is Rachel from The K-Cut. When we recorded this episode last Thursday, we had a brief discussion about Christopher Plummer. Sadly, the next day we heard the news of his death. He was an incredible talent and we were all fans of him. He left us with over 60 years of incredible work on film, television, and the stage. Rest in peace, Mr. Plummer, and thank you very much for all that you have shared with us. the J cut and this is the K cut. I'm Rachel and I just launched a new column with Films Fatale and I love world film and anything to do with language and film. Who's here with me tonight? This is Andreas. I too am with Films Fatale. My own project, the best 100 films of each decade, the Decades Project, is still underway. And my top 100 films of the 1940s just came out last week. So please do check that out and let me know what I missed. Who else is with us? James here. I'm not a part of Films Fatale yet, but I am actually planning something for that. It'll be coming eventually. Join us. <laughs> but yeah, you know me. I do things with sound and music and such. I produce and release music on the, the Alias Boutique Paul, which I actually have a single coming out tomorrow called Winter in Michigan. So that'll be out everywhere. Ooh. And I also am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. Amazing. Uh, please do check out that single. That's exciting stuff. I've only heard some of your work like when you whip up something quickly so i can't even imagine what it's going to sound like when you when you really put a lot of thought into it which speaking of putting a lot of thought into something this week was a series of hypothetical what if scenarios so what is the topic of this week james because this is your topic yeah well i like to call it team dreamers and it kind of came about because sometimes i come up with ideas for different combinations of filmmakers that i think should work together that haven't and I, I just thought it'd be a really cool episode to kind of tackle something like that. And it was kind of something I had thought about previously, but it kind of really solidified that I wanted to do this episode after the most recent article that came out, the what if Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler work together. And that was written by Cameron Geyser, who is a fan of my podcast, who I recommended to write for Films Fatale. It's actually really good because the directors he picks for a kind of project like that are actually really interesting. Yeah. Instead of just... Let's do the same comedic stuff from the 90s that, you know, is very polarizing or, you know, continues to still be made like Jack and Jill, you know, instead working with filmmakers who could actually get the best out of them, which we've seen a, a little bit. So that's why I like these type of hypotheticals. And a few different perspectives. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I like these hypotheticals, because it's not even just let's see Scorsese do another gangster film. He's he's perfected it at this point. But what about extracting the stuff that we've seen glimpses of or stuff that's never even happened that you think could happen. So it really gets the old brain going and, you know, really questions you as a cinephile if, like, how deep can this rabbit hole go? And I love this type of stuff. So I think it's a great topic. Yeah. So what did you have in mind, Andreas? Okay. So one of the films that's been heavily in my mind for the last couple of years And I liked it when it first came out, but the more it resonates in my mind, 
it just won't leave. And I just love it more and more. And I'm seeing it pop up everywhere as like this one foreign film that like anybody really gets into. At one point it was The Untouchables, you know, also on D. But the one I'm thinking of is Capernaum by Nadine Lebecki, who I think is one of the great filmmakers of our time, and she's just getting started. I would love to see her attempt at doing, you know, like an English language political thriller type thing, but with badass female leads. So I've got a couple of mine. That would be awesome. Yeah, I'm thinking of like a trio of fantastic female leads. The first one, because she's doing Oscar and Hillbilly Elegy ain't gonna cut it. Not Glenn Close, I apologize, even though I'm sure she would be really cool too. But I'm thinking Amy Adams, somebody who could have like a very juicy type of like dialogue heavy, crazy espionage type thing. I think she would be like fantastic in the middle of this thing. Nadine Lebecki is fantastic with female cast as well, but I think with Capernaum, we got a little bit of a taste of what she's like beyond just a social commentator, like, you know, the political side of things as well. So that's why I think this would be like a great type of premise or background, you know, nothing too specific, but with her, I think we need to have a young person who could be like maybe like the the teen or the youthful voice of the generation. And I feel like ever since we saw her break out, she's gone a very different route, this person. But I'd like to see her return to dramatic acting. That's Haley Stanfield. Yes, yes, yes. I'd love to see what she would be. Teamed up with Amy Adams. Like seeing this from a different angle, type of like a To Kill a Mockingbird thing where she doesn't quite see it the same way. But this is like her coming of age. She's starting to get her eyes opened by like, you know, the much more jaded Amy Adams, which, you know, jaded Amy Adams like in Nocturnal Animals or, you know, the like is is fantastic to see, you know, Arrival. So to top that all off, the potential villain or, you know, the anti-hero that's paired up with them, whatever it may be. And I brought this person up before with like, you know, taking interesting casting decisions or just appearing in roles that are either like hit or miss or either fantastically out there or, you know, they're bad, but, you know, interesting attempts. After seeing Fox Lux, and we've talked about this before on the pod, I want to see more Natalie Portman being a terrible person. I think as like the anti-hero in this thing or like, you know, the possible main villain, whether it's a fellow female spy or, you know, like a political figure that they're trying to get to. I think we need more of that. And I feel like... Honestly, you're going to laugh, but I agree with you just based on the Natalie raps from SNL. That's true. (laughs) That was like the first instance of it where it's like, okay, maybe she's got an edge. Uh, Okay, Leon the professional, but I'm all for seeing her as the villain. Yeah. So I feel like, and because, you know, she's worked with Wonkar Wai, she's worked with Amilus Foreman, she's worked with, you know, a lot of big name directors just because of, you know, who they are. And perhaps she just wants to have a chance to work with them. Nadine Lebecki is the next big thing. So I feel like she would say yes to this. So that's my pitch. What do you guys think? That sounds like a movie I would definitely go and watch. Cool. Oh, I definitely watch that. Just that cast alone would just be, I would like to see Amy Adams be opposite Natalie Portman because I love them both. And I think it's mostly because the range that they've both shown because both of them, they can literally do anything. Yes. To see them as opposites, like antagonist and protagonist would really be a treat. Yeah, because, like, you just don't see that too often. Okay, like, I could be wrong here. We've seen Amy Adams be, like, blunt, like, in The Fighter, but has she ever been, like, you know, villainous or, like, you know, like, monstrous to any degree? Like, outside of, like, you know, maybe, like, a hillbilly elegy where she's a complicated mother figure or anything like that, but I'd love to see something with, like, real, not even just drama, like, <laughs> like real danger, you know, you know, with, with those three. I don't know. That could be really exciting, and Nadine Lebecki is great attention. Yeah, what popped into my head when you mentioned Amy Adams, the villain, was American Hustle, but I 
don't really see that. I see that as more of a fun villain, you know? It, yeah, like an anti-hero. Like, she's... A, yeah. You're not supposed to root for her, but you can't help but do so. Also, mm-hmm. speaking of American Hustle, if this becomes, like, a British-type thing, um, we know Natalie could do it because of the other Boleyn girl. Haley Steinfeld, I, I would just believe that she could just because she's so talented. She pulled off the True Grit accent pretty well, and that takes some practice. Yeah, how old was she? She was, like, 12 when she did that? Yeah... Uh, that's why I want her in this because like, I feel like, yeah, her music career, she's very popular. She's done a few other films, but I want to see her in like something compelling like this again. Like, and then obviously Amy Adams in uh, American Hustle has a very convincing accent, even though you're no, she's not supposed to be like British or English yet. Her accent is still so very convincing that it's like, wait a second. Yeah. She's American in this. I forgot. So that's my pitch. I'm curious though, Rachel, what is yours? Are we on like the same lines at all? It's so interesting because I'm actually in a very similar way to you. Okay. I was thinking about directors I liked and came up with Catherine Bigelow. Oh, yeah. And I thought, why haven't Brie Larson and Catherine Bigelow ever made a movie together? That is amazing. Please tell us more. I don't know, because Brie has this sort of tough persona. She's been in action films, but she also has her introspective side. And I think that's absolutely Bigelow's bread and butter for filmmaking. Like the Hurt Locker point break, she's done action, but she also can handle the emotional stuff. So I I think that the two of them have a very similar vibe that would work very well. I see them doing a very realistic story, either a biopic or something that could realistically happen to a person, maybe like a story of women in the military, or I'm seeing a very American story and Brie Larson playing a very relatable character going through some enormous ordeal or adventure. It would be kind of dramatic, but also action potential film entirely helmed by women. I like the sounds of that. James, what do you think? I'd be down for it. I think Brie Larson is very talented. It's kind of amazing how she's just now kind of really getting into her groove in her career. I remember Brie Larson when she used to do music. And I don't know if you guys remember, but she had this oh, yeah. reality show on MTV oh, yeah. where it was detailing her trying to do a music career. And then years later, I had heard nothing from her. And then she was in Scott Pilgrim. And I was like, wait a second, why does she look familiar? And I said, oh, Brie Larson, I know exactly who that is. It was strange. <laughs> it's almost like she's the reverse Haley Stanfield. Instead of starting out with the dramatic stuff going into music, that's like for, you know, a younger generation. She's like the complete opposite because there's no hints outside of like her youtube channel or instagram where she plays music there's no hints of that previous career she's like only known for like okay outside of captain marvel you know room short term 12 glass castle pre-fire yeah either her interesting roles or her very fantastic acting which any listeners here who are all about like captain marvel and stuff she's a good actress get over it whatever she said anyway who else is going to be in this thing of yours your uh, Catherine bigelow film who is a brilliant director by the way Hmm, I haven't really thought about it much, but I would say that it would be mostly Bree's story, so whoever was in it wouldn't be of much else consequence. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Bigelow can do big casts, but she's really good at, like, you know, the the centered story. So, like, you know, the Hurt mm-hmm. Locker is a little bit of, like, a, a triptych of, like, you know, the three different perspectives, but Zero Dark Thirty, that's very much Maya, I believe her name is, Jessica Chastain's character. So, yeah, I, I, I totally get what you mean. Yeah, exactly. I didn't really give it much thought beyond those two would be amazing together. In all honesty, that's all I need to know. I would, I would certainly watch that. Just, it could be a movie about them, like, trimming grass, and I'd be like, yeah, that's a fantastic uh, duo. Sign me up. <laughs> like... 
Anyway, uh, James, uh, you came up with this, so I think you must have had an idea somewhere. What was it? Yes, I definitely had an idea. Mine is a little bit more elaborate. Okay. To start off, the combination I came up with, I want to see Steven Soderbergh direct a movie with a screenplay written by Aaron Sorkin. Um, that hasn't happened? No. That would be interesting. That would be so cool. And the main reason is they're almost parallels of each other. It's really interesting. Like if you watch a Soderbergh film and then you watch a Sorkin written film, it boggles my mind that these two haven't worked together. Because honestly, I think Steven Soderbergh could take a script and almost understand his dialogue better than Sorkin himself. Because if you see a lot of Soderbergh films, they're very dialogue based, but he also knows how to manage something that's really noisy and busy. Like imagine like a Soderbergh directed walk and talk scene compared to what we've seen. Yes, I think that would be bliss. It would be like traffic. Which is like really dialogue heavy, but like, yeah, still like you're you're like glued to it. Yeah, I think that would be a match made in heaven. Do you have a premise? I was trying to think of it. I don't know if I want to just go classic Soderbergh route and do something like an Ocean's Eleven type crime thing or, or just a crime movie in general. But I did kind of come up with some casting ideas. I was going through and I was wondering, hmm, what could we do? So then I thought at the center of the movie could be like a couple and it could be kind of younger actors. And I was thinking Timothy Chalamet and Anya Taylor-Joy. Oh, wow. That would be... That would be an amazing pairing. And then we Damn, could have someone yeah. like, you know, they could be like criminals or something like that. But then their mentor could be Keanu Reeves. That's, uh, cool. Okay. that That's... I mean, with his great comeback, right? Right. Exactly. And I was thinking for antagonists, they could be like the typical, you know business bad guys but i was thinking of a team of and it's gonna sound strange denzel washington and nicholas cage two people you don't see as antagonists too often i picked them because think about how unique they are right they're not just the unique actors they're like unique unique like they're very it is ingrained that these two individuals are almost like entities themselves with their acting and their art and very different from each other Oh, yeah. I thought it'd be kind of like a fun combination because they're so different, but they're almost so like outlandish in the in their mannerisms and their style of speak. Because, you know, you have Nicolas Cage. It's like he can, he can be very theatrical, but still captivating. But then you have Denzel Washington. He's very he's very balanced and he's very stern. Like if you see him deliver speech, like his speech patterns are really, really interesting. Like they're always very oh, concise yeah. and they're very. You know, it almost seems like they're rehearsed. They're like rehearsed, but sound natural at the same time, which is kind of weird to say. No, I, I get yeah. what you mean. He's acting, but he's making it look like he isn't. Yeah, it's, right. it's just really, you know, he always steals the show in all of his performances. And the fact that, you know, his son is taking so much after him. John David Washington is a very good actor in his own right, but you can just tell that he's his son. Yeah, yes. I can't wait to see more from John David Washington. And then uh, I had two ideas for scoring for this one, just because you know, obviously I'm a big music nerd. I was either thinking uh, Daniel Lopatin, okay, because he could kind of make it, he kind of give it this kind of surreal, kind of like how he did Uncut Gems. That was a very almost surreal score that was like, it almost puts you on the edge of reality because you're hearing these sounds that don't sound like they should make sense with the scenery or any of the acting that's going on, but it just fits so well. That's one of tricks for you. Oh, yeah, exactly. And then I, on the other hand, I was thinking if we were kind of going through with the kind of crime thing, I was kind of thinking maybe we could have a jazzier score because given I, I like to liken Aaron Sorkin's dialogue to jazz 
in a way because it's like you know he'll write he writes a monologue it's almost like a saxophone solo so i was thinking maybe uh adrian young and ali shaheed muhammad oh well because they do record all analog and they do all live instruments so just to see them compose something that would push the story along with you know all the you know like all the funk and jazz and soul guitar and the you know kind of very steady breakbeat drums yeah, I just thought that pairing would be perfect. Like, imagine had he got Soderbergh to direct Molly's game instead of Sorkin doing right. it himself. That would have been phenomenal. Which, as we've learned the last couple of years, Aaron Sorkin is a good director, but we've learned that when somebody like Danny Boyle does a screenplay or uh, David Fincher directs a screenplay, they tap into something which he doesn't even know that he has in his script almost. Whereas, you know, Chicago 7 is good and Molly's game is good, but they almost feel almost bogged down by like, you know, fantastic writing, but conventional directing, if that makes sense. The, the, the riskiest things like the cuts and everything are what the screenplay ask for, but the actual direction itself feels a little safe. So Soderbergh directing this thing sounds perfect. Yeah. I'm just surprised it hasn't happened yet. You know, it's yeah, something I've been wanting. Reaction. <laughs> yeah. Cause also Soderbergh's made like a thousand movies. So well, he, he could also handle well. the bulk of the production himself because he's his own editor and cinematographer. Yes. And he's ve- he's he's proven to be very good at it. He's very... I don't know how he got so well-versed in color palettes, but... Traffic. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, not even just traffic, but seeing, seeing as he progressed, it seems like he found his lane and he just went for it. It's, like, it's always really interesting. And also, he knows how to... He knows how to manage a busy scene. Like there's certain scenes I'll see where there's a lot going on. And I just think, how does somebody manage all of this going on? It's like, you look at the oceans movies. You have all those actors. He has to kind of corral. Yeah. It's, and there's so many superstars on that cast who all have different personalities. And on top of it, it's a very wordy movie in, in general. So that's why I just made me think, Oh man, imagine what he'd do with Sorkin dialogue. He'd take it to a level where no one else probably could ever do it. Yeah. I think that's a match made in heaven. Pretty much. I think all three of us have come up with some really, really cool ideas. Please let us know what you guys think. Yeah, before we get going, can I ask you all a question? In fact, can we all ask a question? Sure. That's that time. It's, it's fast round time. Let's do this. So, James, what is your question? I'm dying to know. What is one actor that you will watch no matter what, regardless if whatever they're in is good or bad? Christopher Plummer, and he's definitely done some bad stuff over the years. But I will follow him anywhere. I'm not sure if it's Canadian pride or just loving Christopher Plummer's brilliance, but I will never, ever turn down a Christopher Plummer movie. What's well, like a really bad film of his have you seen? Mm, let me see. Hmm. I, I would have to think back on that, but I, I just know that with as many as he's done, there's bound to be a few clunkers. Okay, so I feel like I've said this before, so I'm going to try and give a different answer. The answer I've given before is Natalie Portman. Somebody else who I would go with instead of her, and he, luckily he's not done too many bad things, is Daniel Day-Lewis. He's been my favorite actor growing up since I was a teenager. Like, There Will Be Blood. I watched it. I thought it was a great performance. And then I realized the guy's not even American. Like, he's, he's far from it. He doesn't even sport a mustache. He looks nothing like this guy. I was a fanatic for life. So, luckily, he's not done too many bad things. And it's unfortunate that he's basically retired. But I'd watch anything that for he's now. in. Well, for, for now. You never know. I mean, James, Phantom was a good way to go out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That movie was like a rich dessert of a film. Oh, yeah. For sure. James, what about you? John Goodman. That's a very underrated answer. I will watch 
anything that he's in. I watched Coyote Ugly because he was oh. in that movie, and that movie's awful. <laughs> oh, no. It's like, it's always a good time when he's in a movie. I can never be disappointed by a John Goodman performance. Like, one of my favorite roles is him and Barton Fink. Yes. Mainly because of how wild that movie gets towards the end, and then you kind of start to see what his character actually is, and you're just thinking like, oh, and it's kind of funny because it's one of those situations where one of his the big hallmarks of his career is Roseanne. But then you see his film work and you're like, oh, wow, you're capable of this. I don't know. It just he never gets old. I mean, he obviously gets old. He's fairly John up there at age, but but it's his not, performances just Oldman, never get Gary old. Oldman. It's John Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was funny. Uh, I don't know if it was. <laughs> Speaking of funny, um, I've got a question for you. And actually, mine's kind of similar to one of the answers you just gave. My question is. What's the film that you think is hilarious, like one of your favorite comedies, but you don't necessarily think it itself is the greatest film? Mm-hmm. Let me think. Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. I can start off with mine. Sure. On the topic of John Goodman, and please nobody kill me for this, I'm going to have to go with The Big Lebowski, which I think is a hilarious film with some of my favorite one-liners. I think it's an absolute riot. It has me in stitches. But when I dissect it and look at it as like a story, it's kind of just a series of non sequiturs and, you know, just a whole lot of nothing, which I get is its appeal. But I also feel like I also feel I don't know. I like when the the Coen brothers are pulpy. So like Fargo's hilarious and out there, but it's got a real rich story to it. Barton Fink is almost like the Coen brothers film I prefer where it's like, all about nothing you know he's trying to get the story finished and it's like all the stuff that's stopping him you know in a ridiculous fashion like that's more my speed but big lebowski is one of the funniest films i've seen of the 90s so that's going to be my pick i i love it as a comedy as a film i think it's pretty good which i know is not a, uh, not a popular opinion so i apologize i like the big lebowski but my thing with it is it's not their best and also, I think that movie kind of is more. My appreciation comes from more of the ancillary characters and not Jeff Bridges. Like, yeah, he's funny, but I, you know, I it always kills me when that scene with a John Turturro comes comes up as the Jesus. Oh yeah, I love Jeff Bridges in that though. I think it's like possibly his greatest performance. I would say, it, like, I'm astounded he wasn't nominated for it. Well, I've got to go with John Goodman, too, for this, and that is The Emperor's New Groove. Oh, Oh, nice. I think that it was, it is a very funny Disney movie, the most outwardly comic that they've done for quite a while. And a lot of the jokes land. The villains are awesome. The movie is very funny, but it's not a great film. Like, it's never going to be classic Disney. It's just really amusing, but not a brilliant movie. Yeah, it's, it's weird because the 90s Disney films, I feel like, are quote-unquote classic because kids grew up on them and, you know, it maybe shaped their sense of humor or, uh, you know, stuff that they liked. And I feel like Emperor's New Groove is one of the better films of that category, but it, it certainly does fit the build. So, like, you know, Pocahontas, for instance, not a great film, or The Hunchback. Not a great film. You know, you have Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, which is a little bit different, but of that batch where it's like good Disney, but like not the greatest Disney. Yeah, it is one of the better ones for sure. Uh, definitely hilarious. And I, I love that it's got like that, that comedic wit, which um, I think surpasses a lot of like comedic moments in Disney films. 
Uh, it certainly is one of the stronger, like funny Disney films. I would agree with that. Oh yeah, definitely. I think it's also, it's one of those films that those films remain classic because they were pushing the boundaries of traditional animation before they decided to go completely 3d. And it was also right before that boom of the really kind of more out there films. Like you had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Lilo and Stitch oh, and, and Atlantis, you know, there's yeah. really, it's kind of strange material around that time. And this is kind of like right before, not, not exactly right in the middle, but right before it, but it's also a, a David Spade performance that it's one of those rare things where it's like, you can stand on your own without Chris Farley and do well. Cause for the most part, it's like, he can be good, but it's just, it almost feels hollow sometimes. It was also around the time that DreamWorks started getting a lot snarkier and more oh, yeah. goofy. And so I think Disney maybe, I know that development takes longer than that, but they were sort of trying to keep up. It was about a year after Shrek, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was earlier, but you're probably right. I've lost my timeline with the whole Disney thing. Also, James, don't be hating on, on Lilo and Stitch. That is a goddamn treasure. But oh, anyway, I'm not hating on it. I'm just saying it was, like, <laughs> no, it was, the, more, it was the more creative. It's interesting because the stu- apparently the story is the studio that handled that and stuff like Atlantis and a couple of other things. It was one of the smaller studios, and then they ended up shutting it down. Like the Lion King was the B film and Pocahontas was supposed to be the masterpiece. Right. And, oh, yeah. Lion King was all first time animators and then jokes on them yeah. ended up being one of the best <laughs> movies of ever. Anyway, what is uh, what is your film that you're going to pick for this, James? This is also John Goodman. Well, you technically you've already given us a John Goodman, so you can you could stray away from that. Well, no, I'm going to go since Emperor's Uyghur, we're going to talk David Spade. I'm going to go with Joe Dirt. Oh, oh man. wow. Okay. That movie is hilarious, and that is David Spade in rare form. It's not a good movie by any means, but it's just one of those movies. If it's on, I'm watching it just because of how ridiculous it is. I haven't watched that since I was a teenager, so my recollection of it is very, very minimal. It's also kind of that one. (laughs) If you think about it, it's almost it's kind of an ambitious for the kind of movie it is because it's this kind of where do we get here story and just all this bizarre stuff that happens to me. It's like he's just left at the Grand Canyon as a kid, and then he just has this wild adventure through life, and he's just a janitor at a radio station, and they're like, "Hey, you're interesting. Come talk with us." I I wonder. If it started out as like the sequel to like Midnight Cowboy, like Joe Buck's dad is like Joe Dirt or something like, you know, if it had like these actual like, you know, interesting origins. But, you know, really, it it ended up being a one of the better David Spade films, which I guess is saying a lot. Well, it's funny. I had two films in mind for this question. When you said that it was going to be either this or Freddie Got Fingered with Tom Green. Oh, which admittedly oh. I still have to see. I, I still have to see. It's one of those things that I have to see it because people are claiming it's like a postmodern masterpiece. And it's like, come on. No, it can't be. Like, it can't be. Do you give retrospective praise to what's that film? The Paul Verhoeven film that everyone. Oh, it's Showgirls. Yeah, Showgirls. Yeah, if you it's can give retrospective. If you give retrospective. If you can give retrospective praise to this, this thing is probably a masterpiece. Oh, wow. Okay, because Showgirls, and this is a topic for another day, I can't believe a film that bad could be that decently shot or have a decent score or have competent editing. It just doesn't make sense how this could be a terrible film on all fronts and one of the worst ever made if it was, like, competently made. I don't know. But that's a discussion for another day. Rachel, what is your question? Before I start, I want to say that I quickly Googled it, and The Emperor's New Groove did come out before Shrek, so Disney fans, please put oh, down yeah. your pitchforks. 
Shrek stole. Yeah. So I retract that statement. My question is, what is a movie that has one thing that keeps it from being a great movie? Oh, I got to think about that. Wow. That's a tough one. That's a good question. Do you have an example? Yes. So my pick for this was Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is a delightfully written comedy with plenty of great acting and some really good scenes. Uh, the, the routines are constructed really well, everything like that. But Andy McDowell, for the love of God. Okay. <laughs> Just, she was so blah, and you had no idea why Hugh Grant would be into her for the whole movie when, like, Kristen Scott Thomas is right there and in love with him. And I don't know, it's just... She just drags the movie down so much and the rest of it is so wonderfully done that I it would be an all-time great for me if they had got a better actress or changed the story so she wasn't in it. I'm sorry, Andy McDowell. You seem nice, but no. At least there's a sex lesson videotape, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I, I don't remember. Was the question can it range to like a decent movie that had the potential to be excellent? Sure, why not? Okay. My answer for this, uh, a film that had the potential to be as fantastic as the Fab Four of its source material, I've got to say Yesterday by by Danny Boyle, which is a, a mediocre mm. film that had the, the potential to be fantastic. So if you don't know what the premise is, the Beatles, amongst other things, like I think Coca-Cola, um, you know, other stuff, is wiped out from history and nobody remembers that this exists. And that it ever existed, except for, like, one guy who's like, wait a second, none of you guys know what the Beatles are? You don't know what Hey Jude is? So he starts to capitalize on it. My question is, the first joke in the film relating to that synopsis is the guy starts playing uh, Fix You, I think, by Coldplay. And, oh, no, no, no. He starts playing a Beatles song, sorry. And, you know, the girlfriend's like, Oh, well, it's not Fixie by Coldplay. And that's why I realized the biggest problem of this film. If the Beatles don't exist, all of this music inspired by them doesn't exist. All of this pop culture inspired by them doesn't exist. Wouldn't it have been more interesting if it was like a time machine type thing where it's like if they didn't exist, everything would break and it would be completely different. Music would be so different. There'd be no Ed Sheeran. There'd be no singer songwriter that's similar to this or similar to, uh, you know, the Bob Dylan's of the world and everything. This is a completely different foreign world that this guy's trapped in, as opposed to him having this knowledge accessible to, you know, a world that's already impressioned by the Beatles, except the Beatles don't exist anymore. I think it was just a lazy out to something that could have been a fantastic, forward-thinking, philosophical, like Spike Jones type deal. But instead, it's a mediocre rom-com with an interesting premise that goes nowhere. So that, that that's my pick. It had potential to be fantastic, and it isn't. I didn't interesting. see it. But like, if Spike Jones, instead of the Love Actually guy wrote this, um, I don't remember his name, because that's what it is. And Richard I mean, Curtis. Love Actually. There we go. Yeah, also yeah, he wrote did Four this Weddings, and... incidentally. Oh, well, there you go. That was completely <laughs> accidental. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a hate pod against this guy, I guess. But um, no, like if, if like somebody more imaginative, like a Kaufman or something came up with this, I feel like it would have gone the extra mile, but instead it was a rom-com thinly disguised as something interesting and it isn't. So that's my pick. James, do you have one? I do, and it's a film that, in retrospect, I'm more indifferent about. Not like that it's good or bad, but 
something that could have been great is Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I really enjoyed part one. Part one did what it needed to do to convey this story. And then part two, it just sort of fell apart. And then it just kind of became sort more. Of. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's the ending really disappointed me. Like it disappointed everyone else who saw that movie. But it was just one of those things where he got a great cast. It was obviously an ambitious story, but it's just one of those things where I think the whole, I think his whole shock thing kind of got in the way with it. It's, you know, he's constantly trying to push the boundaries and like be on the edge. Is this infant terrible? But it kind of ruined something that could have been a lot more captivating, especially. Oh, what's her name? Stacy Martin. That was the lead, right? Uh, Charlotte name? Gainsbourg. No, I'm talking about or, the younger the, who played the oh, younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I thought so. she was great, and all the you know all the interactions with the characters who related to her were great. I mean, we even got you know a really interesting performance out of Shia LaBeouf, but it just had all these things leading up to that terrible ending that just kind of because the second oh. part it just gets really weird, and it's mostly with Charlotte Gainsbourg, which I would have preferred her just to be the narrator. Yeah, honestly, I'm considering doing a fan edit of that movie and making it good. <laughs> Just because well, well, you're gonna have to like shoot the footage at the end because you know God knows they don't have it. <laughs> no, I'd find a way to cut that out completely. Okay, uh, before I rant, Rachel, have you seen this? No, I haven't yet. I've, I've been kind of avoiding Bonteria for a while, and I'm not totally sure why. But well, I'll get around to it one day. When he's good, he's fantastic. When he's not, he's an asshole. If you watch. <laughs> What is it? Uh, Element of Crime, Europa. Those are two fantastic films. This was before he decided to take on the edgier material. These are both kind yeah. of noir based films. Well, that I are saw really Antichrist. Oh, that movie. Antichrist, I, like. <laughs> I think maybe that's what put me off for a long time. A chaos uh, reigns. I'd say Breaking the Waves is a really good story. That's it's a bit wish. out there, but it's it's definitely really great. Fun fact. <laughs> um the lead actress wasn't the original pick for that movie. Oh, mm. Emily Watson. It was, right? No, yeah, yeah. it's, um, Oh, I can't think of her name. Uh, what was she? Tim in? Burton's ex-girlfriend. Oh, Helena, oh, Helena Carter. Carter. Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Why couldn't I think <laughs> of that? Really She's, I love her, <laughs> but she was actually originally supposed to be the lead in the movie. And she opted out because she thought he was a creep. Well, she's not wrong. Uh, I mean, yeah, she's not wrong, but I was like, man, I wonder what that movie would look like if she was in it. Time to gripe. I've got to gripe about this movie because if I ever have an opportunity to gripe about Nymphomaniac, it's this, it's this moment. I remember when I first saw it, I actually really liked both parts, but then the more familiar with film I got, because it's almost 10 years old at this point, the more familiar with film I got, the more I realized part one is decent, part two is a hunking pile of trash. So... Uh, first off, it's not his edge that got in the way, in my opinion. It's his ego, like the callbacks to, to Antichrist and stuff, which are so on the nose that they're embarrassing. And then that ending, which, Rachel, if you haven't seen it, do you care if I spoil? I really don't care. Well, I'm going to avoid the problematic parts of the ending, which involve, um, you know, sexual abuse. So let's avoid that. It, the part where the entire climax of this how long is the uncut version, James? Like six hours? 
I of the of its entirety. Yeah, I think the entire yeah. thing is supposed to be like six and a half hours so, or something like that, or five and a half. Climax, I didn't. I didn't see that version. The climax, because I saw it in theaters where it wasn't uncut. The climax, the ending of this whole thing, is entirely in black and with like foley sounds, and it's not like the the power got cut or anything. It just cuts to that. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw this, what happens is Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, who is listening to Charlotte Gainsbourg this entire time. You know, he's celibate. He's like the scientific approach. He ends up trying to abuse her and it cuts to black. So the first time I saw this on cut in theaters, I said, oh my God. So clearly this isn't the real ending. And you hear like this fake gunshot where he, where she shoots him and she leaves and that's just how it ends. So I'm like, okay, clearly they can't get away with the real ending here. I'm scared to know what the real thing is. I hate to admit this. I, I pirated this, but you know, when films like this, I, I don't necessarily care. Uh, I pirated this just to find out. I didn't watch the whole thing. I just skipped to the ending because, you know, I'm not interested in seeing the uncut, unsimulated sex stuff. I don't really care for that. I cut to the ending. It's the exact same. It wasn't a censorship thing. He fully just stopped caring and made this trashy ending without question easily of a great or decent filmmaker and you know a decent film somebody who should know better the worst ending i've ever seen Mm. so not like a bad director but like somebody who should know better it is the worst ending of a film i've ever seen complete and utter horse trash it's also a weird bait and switch because Stellan Skarsgård's character is um throughout this story you hear it's not he's just not just celibate he's never had sex in his life Right, and he's listening to the sexual escapades of this character, and then at the end he tries to attack her, and then you know I think he even brought yeah, well I think he even also brought up he was like you've slept with thousands of men or something like that, me or something, yeah, Yeah. and it's just so weird, it's just so out of character for the character, and then yeah, it cuts to black, and then also it plays the music that played at the beginning, which was this like metal music. Was it Rammstein, I think? I think it was. Yeah, I was thinking of some Rammstein song or something like oh, that. It's God. just so bizarre and unnecessary. And yeah, it's something that could have been great in, you know, all the people they got. Because, I mean, you have even other people in this movie, like, you know, like Christian Slater's in this movie. Uma Thurman's in this movie. Willem Dafoe's in this movie. Jamie Bell. Yeah, Jamie Bell's in it, too. And it's it could have been great. But just him being him, it just fell apart. Yeah, well, I guess we're not recommending that, but it is that time, our recommendations of the week. Uh, Rachel, what is your recommendation this week? Okay, mine is called Celeste and Jesse Forever. It's about 10 years old now. I've seen that. Yeah, it's got Rasha Jones and Andy Samberg as the world's friendliest divorcing couple. It was written by Jones in part, and it's, it's kind of a defying expectations rom-com except they're breaking up not getting together and the whole movie is just them learning to live with this new stage in their lives and i mean it's a really smart look at it and i would definitely recommend it yeah i haven't seen that yet but i've always seen like the poster for it and i know Rashida jones um is very underrated and i'd like to see what she's like as a you said she's a screenwriter right yep she co-wrote it I'd like to see what that's like, because I know uh, she helped write, I believe, Toy Story 4, which I think is not everyone's cup of tea, but I personally like that film, so I have no problem with that. James, what is your pick for the week? My pick? Well, since we were talking about Steven Soderbergh earlier, I'm going to go with Steven Soderbergh's Schizopolis. Okay, cool. 
it's this really interesting avant-garde experimental comedy he did with a really small crew and a small budget. He actually made it around the same time he did Grey's Anatomy with the because uh, he did that Spalding Grey monologue with him. And mm-hmm. it's just really he also he acts in it himself. And it's just this really bizarre movie. It's just it. I don't know. It just it takes comedy and takes it to a level that is just so bizarre, but so him. I don't know. It's hard to describe, especially because, you know, he has it stars him and uh, his ex-wife who uh, plays, I think, his wife in the movie. But then they both each play different characters. And then they also have this really funny thing. It's almost meta where they reference how they look alike these other people and these characters in the story. Yeah, it's nonsensical. It's I don't know. It's it's really interesting. It's a time where he I forgot what movie he was making. There was one movie he was making. I think it was the underneath. If if I'm thinking of the right movie, if that's what it's called, he was kind of not into it. And he kind of checked out partway through production and all he could think about was, I want to make a small movie. And then this is ended up being it, which apparently he actually recut it recently along with Kafka. And I think it's going to be the, both of them are going to be included in some sort of box set he's releasing soon. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's, 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 it's actually really funny. I, wish he would have done like more movies like this just because it's so bizarre because it's like you know he wrote it himself too and uh seeing him act i wish he would have acted more too because he definitely really pulled it off well all i know when i talk to you is that i've not seen enough soderbergh when i feel like i have uh i'm always discovering new films of his that i've never even heard of like this one so well because he comes out with like two movies a year for the most part I don't know if I was in most retirement cases, was like was like half a year or something. It wasn't even his retirement doesn't even count because he did the Nick for Showtime or was it Showtime True. or Stars? And he did two seasons uh, of something. that. So it was like you you retired for film for a few years and did TV. That doesn't count. Oh yeah, no. Well, it counts for him. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. But uh, I'm gonna go a little older with mine, maybe because I've got my my uh, top 100 of the 30s list in mind uh semi-spoiler um it's going to include this fantastic underseen film uh the seashell and the clergyman by germain dulac who's basically mm-hmm. buniel before buniel and um you know everyone talks about Anshian on Deleu, but they don't talk about this which is um basically like another surreal masterpiece but the feminist angle of it uh you know featuring the titular problematic uh clergyman and, um, you know, all these different dreamlike scenarios. I can't say more than that because I feel like, you know, if you're into like a show on Deleu or like my uh, last year, Marion Bad or, you know, all of the great surreal masterpieces, this is definitely up your alley and I can't recommend it enough. It's going to rank highly on my list. A uh, bit of a spoiler, but I adore the Seashell and the Clergyman. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen it, but if not, I, I have. It was it. a while ago, though. <laughs> I haven't, but I'll what have to think? check it out. Oh, I loved it, but um, I got to admit, I was like, it, it was in one of my film classes in undergrad, which I won't date myself by saying how long ago that was, but <laughs> I don't remember all that much. Fair enough. Well, those are a bunch of uh, recommendations or just uh, film topics for this week, and uh, hopefully we will be able to recommend the films that we came up with, because I don't know about you guys, but... I think those were pretty damn good pitches. Hollywood, you better be listening. That was the K-Cut, so you know who to give those residuals to. And um, we are now going into the L-Cuts. <laughs>